0: We are going through our series on Nehemiah and we are drawing it, I don't know, we've got three or four weeks left, we're in week nine, chapter ten, the story is coming to a culminative point at the moment and we are seeing God's people, I guess the fuller picture of the story is God's people turning back to God, that's the story that we can observe and I want to put a question over the top. Of that And I'm happy that if this is the only, if this is the only thing that you remember, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not happy about that, actually. I'd be quite disappointed with all of you. And I'd take it up with you. And there'll be questions about what I've said afterwards. But actually, seriously, if, if this is the only thing that you remember, if this is the thing that you wrestle with in the week, then that'll be, be quite good. This is the question. How do we remain distinctly Christ-like in a culture that wants to swallow us up? How do we remain distinctly like Jesus in a culture that wants to swallow us up. Now you say, I don't think the culture's got an agenda of swallowing me up, but that's what happens. And as I've kind of to try and unpack this question, as I've tried to think about it, this is what happens, isn't it? We, The culture does just swallow us up sometimes. And how do we, without appearing like holy jaws, how do we remain distinctly christ-like how do we not look judgmental how do we do relationship with people and not look judgmental i've i found it's it would almost be easier walking away from the mic it would almost be easier if we could do the one of the two things wouldn't it, it would almost be easier if we could totally separate ourselves in some respects as god's people we are to be separate and it would almost be way easier if we could just become completely separate, separate ourselves off altogether. That would, that would be easier. A bit monastic, a bit like the monks do. I feel like I could get my head around that. Because the other end of that spectrum is that we embrace the world. And I guess I can see, I've seen, and I've done these things. I've been at both ends of these spectrum. I've separated myself off. I thought, this is the way to go. This is how to stay holy. And the other end of the spectrum is to just lose yourself, immerse yourself in the world. And the really difficult question that we've got to wrestle with is that God calls us to be somewhere between those two things. We are to be salt and light. We are to be distinctly different, but not so that nobody can see us ever, and not so that we just end up drifting into the world so that we stand out, so that people can see God, I'm just going to ask if we can quiet our hearts with a, with a word of prayer as we think about that question. How do we remain distinctly different in a culture that wants to absorb us, swallow us up? Father God, we come before you and we, we look into your word. and and we thank you for it. We thank you just now for for the word that's going out next door and we thank you for the children that are getting taught great things about Christ and we thank you that they can enjoy that and learn from it. And we just pray just now that you'll help us perhaps even in a more grown up conservative monologue kind of a way to the way that they're enjoying it next door that we will sit before your word and be blessed. Father God, we come to it and we see it for the mirror that it is. We see how it reflects the truth of your, of your son, Jesus Christ, back onto our lives. And we see ourselves for who we are in it. Father, we come to your word again. And we ask that you will change us once more. We ask that we will not be bored by it. That it will not go over our heads. That we will not just sit for half an hour and exit and then carry our lives on the same we have confidence in your word that it can change us around it's done it before father god we look to it again to speak truth into our lives help me just now to not depart from the word but to give clear instruction that we might be changed and bring god the glory and we ask this in jesus name amen just so you know it's not everybody that can pray in with the okie koke feel like God's given me this special gift in that I can mingle in my prayers in with any song that you want to throw at me. But Okie Koki is right at the end of my prayer capacity. If it's beyond, it's more ridiculous than Okie Koki. <laughs> That's what it was, isn't it? It was Okie Koki. I'm in big trouble. I wonder if there, if there is an app, and there probably is, there's an app for everything, that could scrutinize your personality, that could analyze every detail of your life. And then calculate a list of your priorities, what it would come up with. You might not want to know what it would come up with. You might be uncomfortable with the fact that the third most important thing in your whole life is cleaning your house. And that has been the third most important thing in your life. You might be uncomfortable to know that, that, you, that it's a bigger priority to you to watch EastEnders than to do your kids' homework. This might, this might be an uncomfortable thing to find out, but it's interesting, isn't it? What are our priorities? Just do a bit of the math, do a bit of self-scrutinising just now, just as I talk, just think, right, I wonder what is my top three? What are my absolute priorities? What are the most important things in my life? I wonder if, as assistant pastor at Christchurch, I'd find out that quiet times are down at number 7, or eight, or maybe they've not met the top ten. What are our priorities in life? A few quotes for you. And I've written down the two guys. I don't know the first guy. It is Stephen R. Covey. Have you heard of him? No, I've not heard of him either. But it's a good quote, and you've really got to say who the guy is if you're going to quote the guy, aren't you? Most of us spend too much time on what is urgent and not enough time on what is important. That happens, doesn't it? Life, Life gets in the way doesn't it, of our priorities. Sometimes things overtake us and we respond, because we're human beings, to the things that seem the most urgent and the most necessary, necess- that grab our time the most, with the most necessity. And the stuff that perhaps should be our priorities, we neglect. Gandhi says, I guess at the other side of this coin, action expresses priorities. So I guess Gandhi's saying, conversely, that actually what you do With your time reflects where where your priorities are the fact that it's urgent makes it a priority and how we live out our lives reveals actually what we think is the most important things and then you'd say to me i guess on the back of this app that shows you your priorities you say that's not me ash this, this list that it's come up with, just because I spend all my time doing it, this isn't actually my, my priorities. I'm, I'm a better person than that. Actually, I really want to be like this. It's just, it's just that life's thrown this stuff at me, and this is how, this is how it's worked out for me. He'd say that I'm not quite like this, even though this is what I spend all my time doing. Here's my priorities here. God's people come to this part of the story again, I guess, as they've been shown their past, and they reanalyze their priorities. Nehemiah 9:38 says, In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are adding their seals to this. In view of all this. So I guess over the last couple of weeks, in view of all that's happened, they've built the walls up, they've come before the word of God, and they've looked back and they've wept as they've seen the truth of their nation's past in their lives. And as I read through that and as I've often read about God's people, I've looked a bit down my nose at them and thought, "What a faithless bunch." And when Paul, I don't know if you noticed last week as Paul was talking about them, he started to do this with his hands. And it was a bit illustrative, I think, of of their journey, which from Adam up until the end of the Old Testament was like this. Adam and Eve walked with God and then it didn't take them two minutes before they were on their way away from God. And as you read through the narrative of the Old Testament, it just makes for a zigzag. As the people fall away, they realize they've gone away and then God makes a way back and they get back to the point where they're doing business with God again. And then no sooner are they doing business with God again, than they're drifting off and falling away from him again. And as I read that, I look down my nose at these faithless Hebrew people. And then as I do it, I realize that's my story. That's me. If you were to draw a graph of my Christian life and my Christian existence, it would sometimes, it might not be at the great heights or the great lows, but that's the journey. I am not the least bit like that. I've not been one steady, consistent Christian with no mistakes generally near the top. I've been like that the whole time. And here in the story, God's people find themselves sometimes where we are, back doing business with God again. And what they do is really interesting, I think. They write it down. They document it. They look back on their past, they reflect, and they make a list of promises just so they don't go back and do those same things again. If you follow the news at all, and I'm 37 now, and it's what you do when you get to 37, you're fairly excited about the news. At 10 o'clock, you'll put it on. There's been the Savile Inquiry that has come out recently. Have you, seen, have you seen any of this? Are you familiar with this story? And I guess as the BBC have looked back at their past in the same way that, that God's people did, they've seen this horrific catalogue of errors, this awful story, somehow in and amongst their midst, and what they've, what they've resolved to do as they've been forced, I guess by the newspapers and by the press and by the public, is written a report about this. They've documented it. And what they've said is, we're going to write a report on this and we're going to make a bunch of promises just so you British people will keep keep paying your licence fee perhaps and trust that we're never going to do this again. It's a very human thing to do, I think. We do it in all sorts of walks of life. Um, With, um, I guess, a bit more in the 80s, there was was a lot of drink-driving Accidents, and as a result of that, we wrote a document again, a reform document, saying we need to, we need to look into this and we need to change this. It's a very human thing to do. You've probably done it in a much less formal way in your own Christian walk, somewhere in the in the scraps of paper that are in your Bible. You'd have read a verse one day, realised that you'd not really walked with God for six months, and you'd not really prayed very much, and you'd a verse had jumped off the page at you and you've just scribbled something down that in a sense is what's happening here the people come before God they look at the error of their ways and they realise they need to be serious about this we mentioned a couple of weeks ago that God's word can be a bit like a mirror and it can be a bit uncomfortable do you remember I, I said something about this a couple of weeks ago perhaps you don't, it's been two weeks, lots have happened it can be uncomfortable to look at yourself in the mirror. After having given an anecdote about a mirror two weeks ago, I went home and I was horrified when I looked in the mirror. And I, I get that from time to time. I had, and this is probably too much, this is, this is one of those occasions where it's too much information. I had two horrible old, old man hairs out the side of my neck. And the, the light behind me in the bathroom made them glisten in such a way that I was a little bit repulsed by myself. It was awful. But what do we do when we have these horrible moments? Because I'm not on my own with awkward old man hairs. You will too will find yourself at the mirror sometimes and you'll see you've got a little bit of food that you didn't quite clear away there or your eyebrows have decided to go the wrong direction, which can be a real shame sometimes and really take the edge off your attractiveness. What do we do, though, when we see ourselves in the mirror? Do we just look in the mirror and say, oh, well, there you go, Ash, there's two old man hairs there. I'm sure nobody really minds, c'est and walk out or do we stay in the mirror and mourn our disfigurement and mourn mourn our unfortunate and that's that's the action for old man hairs just in case you're wondering what that is and do we do we stay all day in the mirror and think well woe is me this is a terrible shame we don't do either of those things do we we look at ourselves we we address our ugly mug and we say no the mirror is there for me to do the best with this face that I've got And we shave off the old man hairs and we go out and we face the world again. And that's what God's word was to the people of Nehemiah's day. It was a reflection of their past. And what it says, look, look how you've gone wrong in the past. Look at yourselves. Don't don't stand there looking at it forever. Don't mourn forever. And don't just walk away like nothing's happened. But recognize and acknowledge through my book that things have got to change. James wrote these words. Don't merely listen to the word. We're not supposed to read God's word as, ne- as Nehemiah's people weren't s- supposed to read God's word and just stay in a state of mourning for eternity. Nor are we supposed to read God's word and say, oh, well, I'm not, m- I'm not matching up. It's not working out for me and carry on. We are supposed to read God's word and be changed. That's the plan. What's your relationship with God's book? Are you reading it? Is it impacting your life? Do you just stay sad about the, about the, about the mess-ups mess that you have and the difficulties that you have? And do you find that in a year's time, you've fallen into the same pattern of sin again? Or are you being changed? The people resolved to make three, three changes. And uh, the first one will pop up in the screen as if by magic in a little minute. They began to honour God in their homes. They were distinct in their relationships and they prioritize God in their life. So verse verse 28, and uh, I'd, like, I'd like to think that, I'd like you to think anyway, that me and Paul sat down and planned through this series of Nehemiah. We saw that it was Mother's Day, found the only text that exists anything about parenting in the book of Nehemiah, and planned that it would be on Mother's Day. But that's not the case. It turns out God is a gracious God, and sometimes he helps us out with our planning. Some really great parental advice. At the point in which God's people turn back to God and prioritize him the families look at look verse 28 through verse 30 look at how the families respond at this time of change the rest of the people notice notice who's mentioned in these words the rest of the people the priests the levites the gatekeepers the musicians <clears throat> temple servants and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who were able to understand. Together with their wives, all their sons and daughters, and all who were able to understand. It's almost verbatim from from what was said in chapter 8 when the people got together around the word. All the families came out. And you'll remember back in chapter 4 and 5, as the people were building the walls, the families got together. The families are returning to God. Verse 30, they're also giving guidance. We promise not to give our daughters... In marriage to the people around us, or take their daughters for our sons. Can't help but wonder how that kind of conversation went. These people and their, and their kids getting dragged out in the heat of the day. Sometimes it's our kids, isn't it, that ask the most pertinent questions. Can you imagine day after day as, a, as parents dragging out your kids to come back and listen to the word of, word of God for, for six hours? Stood up. Can you imagine what the kids would be saying? I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going out there again, Dad, to listen to that old guy Ezra open up the book of the law and read it out for six hours. I want to go and play my PlayStation or whatever. They wouldn't have had that then, but whatever. Whatever was the thing that they had, that's what they would have been wanting to do. And yet, the parents and the families prioritise the gathering of God's people. Sometimes it's our kids that ask the most pertinent questions. I guess with it being Mother's Day bit of advice a bit of compassion for the parents have you ever thought about and there are no kids in here just what we put our kids through at Christchurch Christchurch is the worst church I'm you look, look at me Christchurch is the worst church to come to if you're any smaller than that look at what they've got to walk past to get to church have you thought about this have you thought about what you're putting your kids through before you even get in escape you've got to Walk past the crazy bouncy thing that looks like it's designed to give men over 30 a hernia, and you've got to walk past any other number of brilliant looking, amazing rides. Then, when you get in, there is this cathedral before you of the cinema. And I feel drawn to the cinema as I walk in the escalators, everything is saying, Go to the cinema, Ash. And my kids walk in like zombies, adoring everything that they see salty foods, burgers to the left and to the right. And if you manage to get past there with your kids, and they will be saying, Why? Why are we not going here? Look where we are. Where are we going? And then you'll get past the guy who sells the crazy fizzy juice. And if you're lucky enough to get past him, not not that it's the the respectable guy who sells fizzy juice. I don't want to do him a disservice. (laughs) He's doing a great job. And if you manage to get past him, then you've got the the machines that go around like that, the animals. And I'm exhausted just talking about it because my kids want to go on everything. Then you go up the escalators and you're faced with the star attraction of gravity and then if you manage to get them past there they're saying to you dad why why are we coming here why are we coming to church and as parents if our answer is a slavishly observed it's what we do on a sunday we go to church then that's not a good enough answer for our kids when we're walking past all that It's not good enough. We need to tell them, as Nehemiah needed to tell the people, that we're coming to meet with the people of God that have met since the day dot. It's so crucially important that we meet with these people. It's so important for us to hear his word. It's actually the most important thing we're going to do. And if we just look back half bored ourselves and say, yeah, I don't really know why we're coming past all these attractions. Maybe we should go there next week. Then our kids will see through us. As parents... We are the biggest influence, biggest influence on our children. There's not a guarantee that they're going to end up walking the path, but it is a guarantee that we are hugely influential in their lives. I dragged my son, Ethan, out of bed at 9 o'clock just the other week to watch War Horse, and he was up anyway. And and I said, son, there's this brilliant film on. Come down and watch it with me. Mum's not in. We'll not tell her. Your, 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 what, stays, what goes on in the room stays in the room. You don't have to tell her either. And I, I brought him down. I said, look, this is a you know world... And I started to tell him about World War II because I'm very interested in World War II. I'm inspired by some of the stories of heroism. I'm a bit repulsed by the amount of death, but it's just... It's, I, want my, I want my boy to know about this. I want my girls to know about this. I, it's, the girls were asleep. The boy was awake, so he came down. But it was important to me. And by my actions, by my enthusiasm, I showed my son what was important. We do that. We do that in our homes every time we pull the Bible out. Every time we discipline from the hip when it's not thought through with godly wisdom. Every time we gather together as God's people and say, yeah, we just go. We have a huge influence on our kids. And I love coming here. It's been such a blessing. Genuine blessing. We've got great Sunday school teachers. You should be very lucky. You should think of yourselves very lucky we have got great teachers. And we're very blessed to have Paul as the pastor here. Unbelievable teaching. I feel like I'm full up when I come under his word. I love it. And yet, as parents, the biggest influence on our kids is us, is you. We should take it seriously. Not only are we to be honour God in our home, but we are also to be distinct in our relationships. First Verse 30, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year we will forgo working the land and will cancel all debts. So you can see how Israel has has looked back as they opened the word in chapter 8, looked back and seen the error of their ways and seen how they were perpetually absorbed into the culture of the day and lost their distinct nature. And they are saying now, through God's word, this is, the, this is how you will know we are God's people. We are going to honor these things. These will be like badges. You will be able to see us coming as God's people. We're going to honor the Sabbath and we're going to honor God with our relationships, you can see why why this would happen, though, right? You can see how he, how difficult this is going to be to happen. It's it's the Romeo and Juliet story, really. If you if you tell you tell somebody that you can't you can't marry that that person because of the family or the nationality or the kind of income they've got or the family background they come from, then suddenly they become. They don't become less attractive. Romeo wasn't put off Juliet because she was in the wrong family. You know, he fancied her even more. And you can imagine this, this conflict going on throughout the nations. It's not an easy thing to get past. You can see how quickly these people could have been absorbed back into the culture. So easy for them to want to go and intermarry again. So you, you, you tell an Israelite teenage girl, you, you, the one guy you can't marry is the guy from that tribe down there. Then all of a sudden he becomes as handsome as you want him to be. Similarly with the Sabbath, taking a day off and honouring God, fine, easy when the harvest's good and everything's going well, but you have a rubbish harvest and your mother-in-law comes to live with you and you've got another baby on the way and your friend lives down the road, he's planning an extension on his house and you're getting a bit green-eyed about how much money he's got. Then not working on the Sabbath to honour God suddenly gets a bit more tricky, doesn't it? How hard would it be to meditate on God, enjoy his creation on the Sabbath, knowing that you're the guy who's not got any money? And that the whole, I guess this is the thing that we miss sometimes when we read the Bible. We read the Bible from a very Hebrew-oriented perspective. The whole rest of the world are trading on the Sabbath. And God says to his people, you're not to do that. You're not to do that. How hard is it to remain distinctly God's people in a culture that wants to swallow us up? God's people, God's promise, so the promise God's people make is that their children won't intermarry with other nations. God's people had to prioritize being holy and pure, not just because it's inherently good and godly, but because this is. This is the line that Jesus will come from. They are his people, his mission. This is, too, this is too important for it to be corrupted so that the history of the past was that as these people intermarried, their, their authenticity of their, of their Judaism was just corrupted. They just absorbed, and, and some of the people round about were, were very pagan. Some of the ceremonies that they would go to, some of the things that they were doing were really awful. And as they intermarried... The, the, Hebrew, the, the Jewish practice was just becoming more and more diluted and less godly. And God, and God says to them again through his word, this can't happen again. This is, too, this is too important now. You're too important a people. The world is looking at you as my people. And I can't have it polluted in this way. You need not to intermarry with other nations. And I want as well for you to keep the Sabbath day holy. Because then the people will look at you and remember that I am the God who created the earth in seven days and on that seventh day I rested and you rest and I've commanded you to do this I want you to keep this Sabbath I want you to keep yourselves pure because in doing that people will see me and not you I think this is the hub of the issue for me how do we keep ourselves distinct in a culture that is desperate for us to embrace everything around about us. How do we look different? I guess we come to a passage like this, and we say, these, these words don't really have any relevance for me. Keeping the Sabbath, not intermarrying with other nations. This is, this is distant text for me. This is not specific to me. I think there is inherent wisdom for us here in the relationships that we choose. romantic relationships, friendship relationships, business relationships because we are are representing God with our lives and this might mean for single guys or for parents with teenage girls or whatever I'm just giving examples as they come to my head really difficult conversations when we think about what we tell them we want you, our children, to honour God we want people to To see God in you. That's the the most important thing. It's going to mean some very difficult conversations. Some very difficult opinions to hold. But most important is that people see the distinctness of God in us. This is prevalent for me, I think. Becoming prevalent. I've got two groups of friends that really aren't Christian. School-run guys who I love and I'm building good relationships with. And... We've got some friends and some neighbors who we, who, we, who we catch up with a lot. And some of the, some of the habits, some of the, some of the situations I'm getting myself into, I feel like it's very important that I am a representative of Christ in these circumstances. But I am aware that as I stand with these guys that I sh- and, and they share opinions, that I am representing God in this circumstance. So we're looking here at things that are quite specific to Sabbath and relationships, intermarriage. But I think it goes further than that. We represent God in every avenue of our life. And if we just join in with with the blue jokes and we just laugh about things like that, then then what are we saying about our God? We are to be distinct. What does that mean for us? And the battle that I've really had is how do I not look like a holy jaw and how do I not look like I am completely immersed in the world? I realize that I've got to be there. But how do I represent Christ in these circumstances? Jesus was distinct. Not in a, not in a judgmental way, although he will judge. And not in a holier-than-thou way, although he is holier-than-thou. But in a I'm-going-to-show-you-God-by-how-I-live kind of way. We've got some great lessons, I think, to learn from our Saviour. When we think about how we are to be distinct, and we remember how Jesus met people, and dealt with people, and showed compassion to people, and didn't sit in judgment on people, and yet still managed to show them the truth of the Scriptures. Let's remember that in our relationships, in our family units, with our friends. By being distinctly Christ like, we can show people God. It's an incredibly powerful witness. Finally, final point is that we prioritize God in our lives. We also assume, verse 35, the responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks to the house of, God, of our God. To the priests, ministering there moreover we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our god to the priests the first of our ground meal of our grain offerings of the fruit of all our trees and of our new wine and olive oil and we will bring a tithe of our crops to the levites for it is the levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work and you say to me as i read that i'm pretty bored with you reading that ash because the i don't have any oil i don't have any crops I don't have any cows or any cattle. What does this mean to me? How do I, how on earth do I, I can read through this and I can skip on to the New Testament because this hasn't got anything to say to me, has it? Sometimes when we read the Old Testament, it's good to remember there is a, there is a pattern that we, there is a pattern of principles that we can pick up from when we read that through. So we don't have any oil or wine that we can save a tenth of for God or a, or a, or a cow in our garden that we can sacrifice to God but we have stuff that is prioritized in our life that is really important to us we have first fruits in our own way and i think to to sum it up simply in terms of how we deal with a passage like this it's to say that we bring the we bring God the best of our stuff and we bring him the best of our stuff first and it's a really Countercultural way to deal with things, isn't it? Do you remember the, the the Savile Inquiry document I mentioned at the start? And do you remember that I mentioned that in our culture as well, this is something that we do. When we see the error of our ways in society, we see that we've gone off, off the rails, we, we write a document about it, and we, we make a lot of promises, a lot of reform promises. Well, if you read any of these documents, particularly the Savile one, you'll realize that its it's agenda is not just papering over the cacks anymore. You might think that of the BBC. It's not trying to just deal with the endgame scenarios anymore. It realises that that's not worked. And when the FA wrote a document about England's rubbish performance in Brazil, it wasn't wasn't a document designed to deal with the 11 guys that would be playing football at the next World Cup. It was to deal with the heart of the matter. It went right back to first principles, to the extent that, that when my son plays... Five aside on a Saturday morning now, all the players have to run back into the other half so the English guys can learn how to pass the ball a little bit better than they did before. It goes right back to first principles. And the document that came out about the drink driving incidents that happened, they, they, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a document that said, right, after seven pints, it's perhaps a bad idea to drive after that. It's a document that says, I want to get right back to the skin of the issue. Because what's needed is not just dealing with end game consequences. What's, what's needed is cultural reform, wholesale change, right back to the start. And this document, to a certain extent, has worked now. Because when you go out for an evening out with a meal with friends, part of your conversation will be something like, and who's driving? It gets right back to the start. That's the aim of the document, and the document that Nehemiah's people came up with wasn't a document anymore to say, right, here's how we deal with all the all the fallout and all the consequences of all the stuff that's gone wrong. We need because because that's not worked anymore. God's saying to him that that's not that's not the pattern. That's not worked. You need to go right back to the start. So when the Israelites make their promises now, they start with God. The decisions that they make start with God. When I think about how I give. Um, and maybe I could challenge you to think about how you give too. I don't give of, of the start of the things that I have. When I think about giving to charity, it's what I have left. And as I considered that in my Christian walk, I think, well, surely that's, surely that's not the way I am with God. Surely I, that's not how I carry on with God. I pray, right? And then I start to think about when I pray. When do I pray? When do you pray? Sometimes. At the end of the day, I started to think about when Well, when I read my Bible. When do I read my Bible? At the end of the day. I go to church if I can. I serve him when I'm not too busy. I'll help others if I can. I think I thought back over the period of my life, and I thought, actually, if you were to, to make the assessment of my life, I do do things, but is it of my first fruits? Would you? Would the app on my phone that I don't have that scrutinize me, point back to somebody who observed God as the most important thing in his life? Or would it be somewhere else down on the list? There's a challenge for us here, I think. It's very countercultural. Sometimes in our Christian faith, we give from what we have left. And God asks us to do something ridiculous. Something awesome, actually. He says, no. For the outside world to know that you're my people, I want you to give to me of your best and I want you to give to me of your best first. Think about it. How do you show God that you trust him? How would you show God that you trust him? Give him what you've got left when it doesn't really cost you anything or give him your best when it costs you everything. Just to finish. The first fruits celebration. The date for the celebration of the first fruits varies year on year. But when Jesus was crucified and resurrected, the day of the first fruits happened, the very same day that Jesus was resurrected. So there was there was some ceremony that took place on the day of the first fruits. Um, One of the Sanhedrin would go out. One of the Jewish ruling leaders would go out. And all the fields around Jerusalem, remember some of Paul's pictures? The fields would be ripe for the harvest all around. A very visceral picture that you would have. And one of the Jewish leaders would go out and he'd take one crop and he'd chop down that one crop ceremonially and he'd bring it back and he'd sacrifice that first. And until he'd done that with that one crop, then nobody could touch the rest of the crops. That was just the tradition, that was the practice. Can you imagine this picture? Jesus has just been hung on a cross. All the... all the things that he taught us about himself, Jesus has been hung on a cross, and he's in the tomb. God's best in the tomb. The fields around are ripe for the harvest, and then the rumors would begin to spread around Jerusalem. There's no body in the tomb. Can you imagine this scene? God has given us of his best. When Paul thought about it, he wrote this, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of all those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. This would have been a real day of hope for the Jewish people. A day when at last they could grab the harvest. After this initial sacrifice, they could grab the harvest. And I guess it was hope of a year of food in their belly and good health. Since Christ died and was sacrificed and was raised, we have a new hope. And that hope would have been dawning on people around about Jerusalem on that very day as the rumors spread around Jerusalem that Christ was raised, the first fruits from among the dead. We have a Savior who looked death in the face and defeated it. And because of that, we have a hope. Just to close, before we sing, when you think about doing diaries, when you think about your priorities over the next don't know when you do diaries when you think about your priorities over the next few weeks let's remember when you think about your stuff the stuff that means the most to you stuff that you would never want to lose let's remember that God gave of his best when we were at our worst when we think about how we're going to invest our time how we're going to invest our money we have a God in heaven who gave up everything so that we might have hope